Welcome to The Airwave, West Yorkshire Internal Medicine Teaching Collaborative Podcasts, in association with Airedale General Hospital and Bradford Royal Infirmary, a Chief Registrar Programme Initiative. Today's podcast takes a slightly different format, as myself and Elliot talk about a couple of medical cases taken from ChatGPT, talking about our management approaches and the things to be aware of as a medical registrar. So hello everyone, it's Mark from the Airwave podcast team and I'm joined today by one of our registrars and what we're going to do today is something slightly different. We're going to talk about a couple of cases which have been generated from ChatGPT as medical registrars and talk a little bit about our management of these cases, what we would do as medical registrars to give you a bit of insight to our thinking as I would call ourselves experts, Elliot, maybe, in the world of medical registrarhood. What do you think about experts? I by no means would say experts, but I think we've probably seen between us quite a few unwell patients. Just to introduce ourselves, so my name is Mark. I'm the Chief Registrar at Airedale Hospital, and I, I'm the faculty lead, I suppose, on the Airwave project. And how about you, Elliot? Hi, uh, I'm uh, Elliot Greenwood. I'm one of the IMT3s currently at Airedale General Hospital. do not hold the title of Chief Registrar, unlike my colleague. Maybe one day. We could all aspire to certain things, can't we? We're both general medical registrars, aren't we? And we both have a general medical knowledge, if such a thing were to exist. And what we have is two cases, two cases which are generated from chat GPT, but are actually realistic in terms of things you come across on a day-to-day basis. So we'll talk a bit about the management of it. The cases are reasonably truncated because it's more of a discussion that comes from the cases, I think, are more useful from an education point of view, rather than the ins and outs of cases themselves. So are you ready for the first case? Yeah, I'm a bit worried that I'm going to be replaced by an AI at this rate, but yeah. Well, the AI generated the case, not the responses. So if there is a really good response, it's come from us. So that will be our credit, not the AI system. So anyway, the cases, what we have is an 82-year-old man with a history of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, otherwise known as COPD, and heart failure. He has been admitted to hospital with severe pneumonia and is experiencing respiratory distress. He's been seen on the post-take ward and taken to the respiratory care ward. So this isn't the ARCU, this is the standard old respiratory ward. He's become increasingly drowsy and his FiO2 requirements are increasing. And you've been asked to go and see the patient from one of your medical SHO colleagues. So, Elliot, how are you assessing that? If that's the information I've given you, what's the first thing you're thinking? Okay, so the first thing I would be thinking is 82, COPD, heart failure, respiratory distress. So obviously you start thinking of all the differential shots, breath, but even before I get to that moment in time, there's two things you've mentioned. One, my medical SHO has seen them already. So I'm thinking, okay, what questions do I need to ask my medical SHO? What have they done so far? What basics have they done? Have they got access to an ABG? Have they requested a chest X-ray? Have they listened to the chess and, you know, ask them, you know, what their differentials might be? Because also this is a learning opportunity for them and not only for yourself. And they might say something that you haven't thought of in your differential list as well. The other most important thing that I tend to do personally is I always want to know patient's escalation status. You know, are they for everything, which means level three ICU care, level two sort of HDU care or level one ward level care? Because actually, if I go see a patient and I know that in my mind, 
I know where they are going to be heading should I fail the treatment therapy. So if I get there and a gentleman is on 15 litres non-rebreathe and he's for ICU, then I know that I have scope to think about things like CPAP, high flow oxygen, intubation, ventilation, if they are a good candidate for that. Um, and that is my kind of get out of jail free card. If, however, this gentleman is on 15 litres non-rebreathe and actually because of his COPD, heart failure and everything else, it's deemed that actually ward level care is appropriate for him. You know, if I can't win with my 15 litres non-rebreathe, either antibiotics, IV fluids, then actually, you know, I need to be thinking about family, sensitive conversations and actually more advanced care planning going forward. So just from what you told me, that is... That would be my initial approach. Interesting. So I can answer some of those questions that you've you've put to me. So what have they done so far? You have an ABG. Would you like to know the results of the ABG? Yes, please. So the ABG taken by your colleague has a pH of 7.21, a PO2 of 13, a PCO2 of 11.1, a bicarb of 24, and a lactate of 6. What are you thinking now? So arterial blood gases, um, one of the most important things is other than taking the patient sticker with you when you put it through the machine, because that's the worst case is when you get given ABG and you run to the machine, you actually have no patient details with you. So you don't know actually who the patient is. So if you get given an ABG, make sure you take some patient information with you. One of the other important things to know is how much FiO2 they're on. So obviously on air, it's 21% FiO2. Usually if they're on a Venturi uh, or an Inspiron, it'll tell you what their percentage of fractionated Inspiron option is. And your PaO2 on the gas should be 10 less than that. So if he's on room air, PO2 of 13 is, is normal, right? But if this gentleman's on 15 litres normally breathe, that's still type 1 restricted failure. So first of all, we know he's acidotic, pH of 7.21. Then the next thing is to work out whether or not is it a respiratory acidosis or metabolic. So PCO2, I think usually it's between four and six there and thereabouts. So we know that he is probably got respiratory acidosis. He's got low oxygen in the context of being on quite a lot of oxygen. So that by definition is type 2 respiratory failure. But this is when my escalation question comes into uh, uh, question mark. What is this gentleman's escalation? Nothing more about a gas. You just want to know the escalation. Future Jerry's rich in making. So the escalation status of this gentleman has not been determined. Fine. Okay. So that's the kind of worms that we'll get into. We can go back to the gas for a second, and we know this gentleman's in type two respiratory failure, and he's got a high lactate on a background of COPD. Okay, so I think the next step is I need to see the patient. I need to do an A to E examination on him, don't I, to find out is this overload due to heart failure? Is this a COPD exacerbation? Actually, does he have a DVT and is this a PE? Let's go something a bit rogue. You've got to keep your differentials wide, haven't you, before we get other things like, you know, chest x-ray and stuff. But I think if he's scoring high enough, I, I need to see him first before I can go and find out that information and make those sort of big decisions. I just need to see him first, I think. So let's say you go and see this gentleman. He turns out to be quite frail. So he is, he looks cachectic. It turns out he's actually been really struggling with his COPD for many years. He's been diagnosed COPD 15 plus years. And he has carers at home. He rarely leaves the house. He lives a reasonably poor quality of life for, for any patient, let alone someone with the comorbidities that he struggles with. Does that ABG make any 
any is there any further context there that you would find useful? I mean, he doesn't strike me as a man with a great baseline, and he's a fair statement. You've got to think about when, because obviously what we're talking about here is BiPAP, aren't we? He's got two problems. He's hypoxic and hypercapnic. So he needs, you know, two pressures for that. That's why you have CPAP, one pressure for one problem, which is hypoxia, and then BiPAP, two pressures for two problems with each of your hypoxia and hypercapnia. And he's got two problems. So we're thinking about non-invasive ventilation. Now, non-invasive ventilation is, uh, can be suffocating, can be difficult, and there are some contraindications to it. Frailty isn't necessarily one. And while, yes, I do think I like my elderly patients and I, I do hope to be a geriatrician, I don't want to write someone off a potential life-saving treatment. And it becomes one of those things where you've got to kind of speak to the patient, speak to the family, and kind of get a feel about what's right and whether or not NIV would be the right thing for this man. Don't forget, we actually probably need to identify the cause first. And you should treat them for an hour, especially if it's a COPD exacerbation. They should, in theory, have an hour of optimised treatment before you think about then repeating the gas and seeing if they still need type 2 and then need BiPAP. So you'd probably give him steroids, NEBS, and then repeat the gas in an hour after that. Mark, when you read that baseline, you're in this position. I'll put it back to you. What what are your gut feelings? Because that kind of what it is, isn't it? You get this gut feeling when you see somebody. Exactly. And I think one of the, the challenge here is the gas. You've not got the gas in front of you, I do. So there's a little bit of benefit. The PO2 is slightly on the high side. And that's one issue you do tend to find out about is that you'll end up with a patient over-oxygenated. The PO2 here is 13. So actually what I, my first step would be, what can we optimise that we haven't currently optimised? And the key step of that would be, making sure we target into the range that we should be targeting. On the back of that, a patient with known COPD, there should be a lot of history about this chap's respiratory function to give me an indication to how well he is likely to do on NIV. So there's a question of what is his, what have the respiratory nurses been doing with him? We know that his functional baseline is poor. That's likely suggesting that he has quite severe COPD. That's not to say the patient doesn't benefit, but it's got to be a reversible Cause. And I think one of the challenges of being a medical registrar and the skill set you bring to these patients is, is the issue that I'm currently facing one I can meaningfully fix? Or is this just someone who is progressing into their disease? Most progressions have some degree of reasonably sharp downhill turn. It's rare someone progresses very slowly on a curve that is entirely predictable. And COPD is one of those diseases where the end can come quite quickly for certain patients. So I agree entirely with your decision about going and assessing the patient. The gas in of itself would worry me. We know that the patients don't benefit so much when the pH is less than 7.25 as that reasonable criteria we're looking for. And a lactate of six as well. This patient's showing signs of poor perfusion, potentially driving that lactate. Is there another cause behind the lactate? That's not something that we can asperse based on the case that we have in front of us. There's multiple things here going wrong. There's a perfusion problem in all likelihood. There's a respiratory problem. There's a heart that's already, we know, having a difficult time because there's a history of heart failure. So this type of patient with the bias that I have, I would be starting an IV if we went through about a half hour, hour, as you say, of correction, trying to correct with nebulizers, optimization of medication, and we still found ourselves in this situation. But it would be with that caveat that I have to know what I'm trying to treat. And I have to have a reasonably clear idea that's going to work before I commit to that treatment. This gentleman I probably would treat and I would probably use BiPAP 
as a treatment, get those pressures up reasonably quickly. But there's a lot of context in the history, and I think that's one of the challenges as a medical registrar is working out what is actually going on. When we go to crash calls, when we go to see our well patients, most of the simple things are done before we get there. Most people have done the gas. Most people have done the titrating the oxygen. We're normally called when either the disease is progressing despite treatment or the diagnosis is wrong. Those are the two main things that, that I end up coming across. So with this patient, I would agree with everything you've said. I don't think there's anything else to change. The challenge is knowing what's going on. And yeah. that's always the most fundamental bit of being medical registrar. Is there any of the bits of the history that you'd like to know, any of the tests that you would perform? I think I think when you have so is that's a difficult one because obviously when you have someone who is unwell, say this gentleman's I don't know the obs and everything else we need to we need to work that out, but say he is working really hard to breathe and he's obviously acidotic and he's not a well person, there are certain bits of the history that don't always matter. Um, if that makes sense, like that can be secondary to you acutely trying to fix this person. That mm. needs to be done first, and then you can do a bit of research afterwards. I must agree. I, I kind of do disagree with you, though. I find that actually my role as a med reg, or certainly has been so far, is actually making sure the basics have been done and done well. I sometimes find I come across these patients and they haven't had a gas. They haven't had a chest x-ray yet. Their stats are 96%, and actually they're still over-oxygenating them. So actually what I sometimes find is I come in there as a calm pair of hands and just say, do gas, do a chest x-ray, tweak his oxygen down, do this. And actually, I find that those little changes are the bits that make, make a big difference. Should we get I to think the at the same time, I think at the same time, you can end up being, the diagnosis can be misled by the lack of that basic information. Sometimes someone hasn't had that good listen to the chest, actually, that's what you need. So I know I entirely agree with that point, making sure the basics are done well and, and being critical of the outcome in terms of where you found yourself. And some of that is that diagnostic curiosity. What else could we be missing that perhaps we haven't picked up on? But as you say, rightly, making sure the tests have been done. For example, if, if actually it turned out this guy had, you know, we know he's got severe pneumonia in the context of COPD. Are we sure that's pneumonia? Is it not just a progression of the heart failure? Have we got a recent echocardiogram? Do we understand his renal function adequately? Have we got all the information available that actually has helps you assure the diagnosis? And I agree entirely with the point about making sure the boxes have been ticked so that you aren't missing something, because sometimes people haven't done the basic test that you need. Chest x-ray in this chap, it could be that he's just popped a lung and now he's got a pneumothorax because he's been breathing so hard. And if you didn't have that chest x-ray available and you put the patient on BiPAP, potentially you're making things significantly worse. So doing the basics well is an integral component, I would agree entirely. Is there anything else in this case that irks you? I, this is a reasonably common one, and one of the challenges, particularly <clears throat> in these patients, is the patient suitable for BiPAP who doesn't necessarily meet the BTS criteria. And this patient would be an example of that. In the sense, the pH would be too low in a drowsy patient. And actually, in reality, when we set our ceilings of care, we disregard bad advice and provide an IV despite the risks of a patient who's drowsy of an NIV mask is at risk of aspiration. And that's the BTS's recommendation about right. intubation. So actually, we're making a movement away from guideline, which is, is always quite a challenge. Is there anything else in terms of diagnoses you've, you've mentioned about the severe, you know, severe pneumonia, COPD, heart failure? You've mentioned PE. Is there any other diagnoses that you'd be worried about in this patient? I think that's most of the ones I would think of. 
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned obviously quite rightly, I mean, if he's got a bullus and he's got a COPD, you know, he could have a secondary pneumothorax. And that is one of the reasons, like you said, you get a chest X-ray prior to the NIV. I mean, obviously you've got the the lactate of six there you need to be aware of. So I'd hope that on my clinical assessment of his A2E, list checking airway, listening to his lungs, has he got perfusions or pulmonary edema? Is it more crackly and dull, fitting with a consolidation? You can obviously get mucus plugging and collapse. So that's something that I'd be looking for on the chest X-ray and clinically. You know, saline nebs, chest physio can sometimes help with that. Flash pulmonary edema, you might be thinking, is he had an MI? I know obviously you're a cardiology reg, and I don't know if you might have slipped that one in there. Um, I haven't slipped that one in there. No. So you, you, you'd get the basics, like you'd get an ECG. I'd want to know what his blood pressure and heart rate is. Obviously, that would help me decide whether or not he's, you know, is he septic? What's his temperature? Uh, what's his GCS? Because like you said, drowsiness and unconsciousness is a, a relative contraindication. And everything else then, E, so you're looking for DVTs, aren't you? You have a feel of his tummy, making sure there's no evidence of mesenteric skin with that lactate of six. And then if you if you feel that he's relatively euvolemic and his BP is okay and his heart rate's okay and you get a chest X-ray and it shows a bit of consolidation, bit of fluid on the lung, he sounds a bit wheezy and he's a combination of all three, you can throw the kitchen sink at him, couldn't you? You could give him IV antibiotics, give, give him nebs, you could give him a bit of frozenide as long as he's renal. Really I was going to ask you okay. what's in the kitchen sink, what have you got in the kitchen sink you could throw at him? Yeah, yeah. So I think, well, it goes back to our conversation, what is his healing of care? Because then what he's seeing of care dictates what you can put in the kitchen sink to throw at him. You know, if he's only for world care, I'm not going to be throwing ionotropes and vasopressors at him. But uh, I can give him fluids cautiously with a heart failure and I can give him IV antibiotics to treat for infection. I can give him NEBS. I can give him a bit of diuretics if I actually think the problem is fluid overload. I can titrate his oxygen. There are there are lots of things that I can do on a ward uh, and not necessarily needs to go to HDU and ICU for. I think one of the really important lessons you learn as a medical registrar is the amount of things you can do before you end up at that point. There are times when the answer is just staring you in the face. When you run out of oxygen on the wall and you know the next step is a respiratory step up in care. But actually, there's lots of really good things we can do. But it's about knowing what that diagnosis really is. One of the one of the challenges of being a medical registrar is the hypoxia of unknown cause, as I would refer to it, where the chest X-ray doesn't really tell me much. The person's a bit old and has a bit of a history of heart failure, but not particularly much. The legs are a bit swollen, but they're both about the same or maybe one's a little bit bigger. And the CRP is about 50 and they've had a bit of a cough. And you say, well, it could be any of the above couldn't it and the kitchen sink the old respiratory treatment of i'll give some diuretics i'll give some oxygen i'll give some antibiotics i'll give some steroids and i'll give some nebs none of them really hurt the other ones so actually it's normally worth just trying them and seeing if they work but it comes down to good patient assessment which is as you rightly say and making sure the basic boxes are ticked and i think you've kind of hit the nail on the head there there are a lot of things that we do that potentially have a lot of benefit and not that much risk i'm always cautious with iv fluids in elderly especially if they have a history of heart failure but i mean nebulizers and steroids i mean giving someone the stat dose of pred is not probably going to hurt them but not giving it is probably maybe not going to make them better so there are lots of things in the med reg you're like well we can give it if you as long as you can justify it medically it's safe you know, there are lots of things that you can do in, in the hope that you improve your clinical situation. I mean, as an on-call med reg, your job is to stabilise, do safe, sort of reasonable things. 
and kind of if you are then stuck then there are people like your acute medical consultant on call that you can ring icu if you need to you know you aren't actually that much on your own our job is basically to keep people ticking over 12 hours overnight so they can they can stay alive in the morning if needed and obviously hope that we fix them in between and we look good but not always <laughs> not always but i think I think one of the the really interesting points when it comes to treating patients like this, when it comes to the escalations of care, is often explaining to family that the things we know work the best are the things we can do on the ward. Yes, when patients are really sick, hemodialysis works in certain patients, hemofiltration works in certain patients. We know inotropes are great at maintaining blood pressure, but there's normally a reason why that blood pressure has fallen in the first place. A lot of what I see in HD by you is time not necessarily treatment. You don't go to intensive care to receive more intensive treatment. That's kind of one of the challenges of the nomenclature. What you do is you receive treatment to keep you well and keep you hemodynamically stable whilst the stuff we know works, works in you. And that's one of the challenges here is in reality, the things that are going to work are going to work on the respiratory care unit or they're not going to work at all. And actually that helps you make that escalation decision. I think... I think that's really important, actually. If if you are going to send someone to HDU or ICU, you need to know what you send them there for. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ICU consultants uh, once told me that the patient doesn't need to be ICU because the air is not magical, i.e. it's not a safer area just because it's mm-hmm. an ICU. So if you are going to send someone to ICU, you need to know, is it for BiPAP? Is it for BP support? You know, ICU are happy to probably help you, but, you know, you need to ask them what you need them to do and what, what they're able to do, basically, you know, moving them off the water somewhere else for 15 litres normally breathe, you know, treatment there is not going to make the world a difference. But if you say, actually, this man needs, you know, high flow oxygen or BiPAP, then, yeah, they can help you. So you need to know why you're sending someone to HDU and why you want that level of care. Now, that's whilst the treatment that you're providing continues to work and solve the underlying problem. No, I entirely agree. Should we move on to our next case? Yeah. I'm aware we've eaten a little bit of time up, so let's go on to our next one. The next one is even more open-ended, if you can imagine, Matt. Let's not describe specific scenarios. Let's just go for the most open-ended cases possible. This one is another case that I have seen many a time as a medical registrar and I think is worth giving air to. What we have here is an 89-year-old woman on one of the frailty wards in your hospital who has been found unresponsive at night. Nobody can wake her, nobody can rouse her. She has a history of severe dementia. She has a history of hypertension and a history of atrial fibrillation. The examination is normal. She's hypertensive, as she always is. Pupils are equal and reactive to light, but you get no meaningful response out of this lady. What's your thoughts? 89-year-old, I guess, so obviously unresponsive. You can, you can have some time, by the way, but you can always edit all your pauses out, so you can sit there and have five minutes to gesticulate on the case if you no, need. No, 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 no. You don't always have five minutes, So because sometimes you're busy and you get bleached about this, you've kind of got to go and just kind of think about it, haven't you? I think, mm. obviously, stroke is a big one that you're worried about, isn't it? But if you've got no blown pupils or you're worried about hemorrhagic stroke, it's possible. She's got severe dementia, so is it a hyperactive delirium on a background of dementia? Has she got something else going on? Opioid toxicity, but her pupils are reactive and not a problem. She's not hypertensive. You've not told me that she's breathing shallow or anything like that. It's one of those things where you can come across these patients and it could be that she's just asleep and profoundly deaf and actually just need to shout at her and wake her up and actually she's fine. I have had that happen to me. And also, I mean, you could also have someone with a hypertension AF who's just stroked out on their ward with no clear onset time. 
So if that happened, you'd want to do a formal GCS, you'd want to do a neuro exam, you'd want to have a look at her renal function. Has she been given any sedatives recently? Has the nurse or doctor who's been with her in the daytime when she's severely demented and delirious and she's been smashing up the ward, given her a bit too much loraz and knocked her off? Those are the things that I would be thinking about. And it goes back to the basics. What I said, I'd approach the patient how I approached the last patient. I want to know their escalation status. I'd want to know what their recent history is. I'd want to do a thorough A to E assessment. I'd want to make sure they've had recent blood tests, a gas, because once again, hypercapnia can cause drowsiness and unconsciousness. So you'd, you'd go in with a broad differential. You'd get the basics, ECG, you know, is this the yeah. same kitchen sink you threw at the last patient, or is this a different not, kitchen sink? No, it'd be different. There's no diuretics here yet, because it's not an oxygen. <laughs> and that's the thing. You know, as long as you have the same basic approach, it kind of becomes a bit like a reflex. I'm sure you find that. You know what you're going to go and do. And then what is presented to you is then how you change your management plan or your differentials. Mm. It could also be that this poor lady in her 89 could just be coming to the natural end of her life. And you'd want to you'd want to ensure that, those kind of conversations have been had with the family in terms of frailty and severe dementia. There was a good escalation plan, advanced care planning in place. That would be something that I would definitely want to uh, make sure is covered. Um, and I'd also want to make sure that if uh, Mark, I'm going to actually put this question back to you. So, say this person's had a stroke. Clinically, you think they've had a stroke. I, I know what the outcome of the case is. So you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, it's, it's interesting to get your input. So, you think this 89 year old lady has probably had a stroke? Sometimes, as a medical registrar, you have to have sensible decisions and sort of discussions with the family about would a CT head necessarily change the management plan, i.e. if it showed that she'd had a catastrophic stroke or a catastrophic bleed, is that beneficial or is that going to distress her further? And therefore, do we treat her empirically and hope that she gets better? Or do we think about palliation I don't know if you've been in a situation where you have patients in sort of similar situations where actually just because you can do an investigation doesn't mean you always should. I think that's a really good point. And actually, I would I would really agree with what you're saying in a sense that I don't do investigations if I don't think it would actually help the patient in the long term. So if this patient is like this because of a stroke, that's a very significant and severe outcome from a stroke. And I would be more mindful to trying to reduce the stress and potential upset to the patient and think about what actually brings their care together in a more succinct manner. It's difficult to operate about a CT scan in patients with GCS changes, particularly if I was to add, if this lady was starting to develop symptoms that were suggestive of a stroke, it's very difficult to not actively investigate and to be so confident to say, I know what this is likely to be, therefore I'm not going to treat it. And that's a very pragmatic discussion that you have with family a lot of diagnoses we make in hospital don't help the patient, they help us in terms of writing the death certificate. When you send this patient to the CT scanner, actually, are you really informing her care or are you more informing yourself? If that makes sense, if that kind of circle can be squared. In this case, I probably would want a CT scan if this patient had been well up to this point to try and clarify what may have gone on, partly because ongoing anticoagulation in the case of a hemorrhagic stroke would not be helpful to her in her general health. But if there was a patient in front of me who was having respiratory pattern changes with this type of picture, I don't need a CT head to tell something significant has happened. It's context again. And that, as you say, that good assessment that helps you make that decision. 
I am not a fan of investigating things for no reason. There has to be a potential outcome which helps the patient. Even if it's a small one, such as we won't give you anticoagulation for a week or two, but there has to be a reason why you do the scan. In this patient, I probably would. I could also understand someone saying to me, her family just want her to die peacefully because she spent the last five years completely dependent. That's an escalation decision. And you can reasonably, within your respect form, say does not require further investigation. If patient comes in unwell, treat what you see, make sure she's comfortable, send her on. If that's the sort of decision that the family would want me to make in this case, I would entirely back that decision. It gets difficult in cases like this when the airway starts to change, when people become a bit drowsy and they're unable to maintain their airway. And you have to start thinking about what am I doing that's prolonging things if there is something that's underlying this. In terms of diagnosis, I agree with you, stroke is probably one of the biggest ones. But my, have I come across patients who have severe dementia with hypoactive delirium who you cannot wake up for toffee and a bit deaf and a bit blind and they will sleep through absolutely anything. So there's no guarantee that I know exactly what's going on here. Have you come across those type of patients yourself? Yeah, very much so. And sometimes actually... I said just doing the basics, ruling out anything serious and then just giving it a bit of time. And actually, a bit of time if they're stable and well spotting her own airway. You know, if, if she's a bit rustly and not spotting her own airway and she looks like she's peri-arrest, then actually I'd be getting the family and, and having some very sensible conversations and prioritising her comfort and dignity. But sometimes giving patients a bit of time, seeing how they act over the next couple of hours. And if that hyperactive delirium fluctuates, that gives you a bit of time as well just to delve into things, look at things like bloods, meds, stool chart, constipation is a big cause of delirium in the elderly. You know, glucose, don't forget about glucose. DDFG, don't ever forget glucose. Yeah, well, I have seen a lady with the glucose of one that was just kind of not checked for about an hour. And it does happen. People do forget. And that's why I don't forget about glucose. And it's only through experiencing these things that you, you learn. And I think that's the thing I would pass on to any of the IMTs or people who are becoming med regers. Your experiences that you will get through your IMT training and is what you've had as a medical doctor do influence what kind of reg you are and the regs you've worked with as well and, and how they uh, handle situations. And there's a really interesting point about the do not forget glucose components. When you go to a crash call or an unwell patient is escalated to you and there's a team of nurses stood on the other side of a bed kind of wanting to do something, it's more than reasonable to say to all of the nurses, right, can you go and get the glucose? It's actually it's a slightly time-taking task and it helps the nurses feel like they're doing something because that initial assessment of an acutely unwell patient in collapse often has a little bit of sitting around and seeing what happens next. Oh, but that's why I love a blood gas. A blood gas is just the best thing at a crash call or an unwell patient. You get everything on it. You get pH, you get PO2, PCO2, bicarb, you get the HB, so you're like, oh, well, then they're bleeding. You get the electrolytes, potassium, sodium, and you get the lactate and the glucose. So you get everything on that thing. I, I, if I could have one blood test at an arrest or during an unwell patient, it would it would be a gas. It would be. Well, that, that, but that's why they made the ABG say the things it does, because otherwise it would be a bit pointless if all it told you was the HB, wouldn't it? It's, yeah, a good, right. it's a good compound test for sick patients. And by and large, it's just one syringe, take it, run it, you get the results back in minutes. The other thing I want to pick you up on actually is a point I think is really important is time as a medical doctor. And I, I've recently been filling out some mini kexes and CBDs from some of our our locums who have sent some through. And one really interesting point from one of our locums was 
when I mentioned to them that if you're not sure, just sit and watch it. If the patient's coming into hospital because there is something that is limiting their discharge, you are allowed to sit and watch a saturations of 93% and not put the oxygen on. And the joy of medicine compared to emergency medicine. So our role as medical registrars compared to the role of the emergency physician is we can sit and watch. We can see the natural progression of the disease. And if it's becoming apparent that there is a pathology underlying what may have been a very small deviation, we can treat it. Not every small deviation requires a massive response. Sometimes just watching things will give you the answer. And it's amazing how often just watching things is a better answer for all the patients, particularly with SATs of 92% in pneumonia. I tend to say to the nurses, just watch it. If EQ is matched to that set of lungs with that pneumonia, you go put the oxygen on, you're going to upset the VQ ratio. It's going to be hard to get that patient away from oxygen. So actually, if the patient's not that dyspneic and they're tolerating a little bit of hypoxia, that's their lung physiology matching the pneumonia with treating the underlying problem. That's perhaps one of the biggest themes here is knowing what you're treating and treating the underlying problem. And if you need to know it or don't. And going back to our case specifically, you mentioned about about time. If this lady was fine four or five hours ago and has done this the last couple of nights where she's just gone completely flat, I would sit and watch it. And I'd say it's weird. Elderly people do lots of slightly odd things that we don't quite understand. That's one of the joys of medical literature. We tend to research and test younger people. There's lots of elderly physiology we don't understand. And there are, I'm, I am convinced that there is some disorder of the elderly that affects their sleep pattern so significantly that they can appear severely obtunded, even if it is just hearing and sight. And you've got to treat people properly, treat people respectfully. But in a case like this, read through the full history. If she does this every night, if she's known to sundown and then as soon as it hits three o'clock, she passes out. Use your knowledge, put the common sense in the medicine you'll often find an answer that works for you. Is there anything about this case that brings home any cases you can think of yourself? I mean, lots, unfortunately. This is a very common scenario where you get called out in the middle of the night to see an unwell elderly patient who just isn't as responsive. And it's usually, it's rare, it's rarely something that serious. It's actually much more common for it to be, you know, that if opioid toxicity and CKD, just kind of watch, or they've had a bit of lorazepam, or actually just a bit constipated and it's a bit of a delirium, or they've just been up all night the night before, like, you know, like I said, a bit delirious on the ward, walking up and down, actually just tired. I want to ask you if you could recommend a nugget of information that was passed on to you as a medreg, what nugget of information would you pass on to the next generation? What nugget of information would I pass on? That's a thinker. I'm trying to have a think about what what information. There's lots of, I think part of the challenge is our role is so diverse that one specific bit of information is hard to sort of give as a clinical note. But what I would suggest is that nobody knows everything. I think it's a very true point. And one of the challenges, I think, when you leave IMT to and start acting as a medical registrar is you have this sort of belief that the medical registrar knows everything. And actually, in reality, most of us don't know everything, but we know what makes sense and we understand the basics of the science behind it so that then we can make the guidelines fit. I remember seeing a patient when I was 93, reasonably new, and starting a patient on aminophilin in resus and having the A&E 
consultant go, oh, that's a really good idea. Let's do that. And I told him all about the monitoring that we needed and the doses, and they were very impressed by my knowledge. But in reality, what I'd done is Google the form on my way down and found a recent guideline that someone had produced. And in in a way, it's be proud of the fact that you don't know stuff. That's part of the process is not fully knowing everything about medicine, but know where to look. I think people who are too proud that they won't take advice or admit that they're wrong are more dangerous. And I sit there on a not infrequent basis and will say to people, I don't know what's going on. And I actually think it's good to wear that. And that doesn't make you a failure for not knowing the answer to something. No, and I think that's it's it's safe. I think that's that's the most important thing is a medical registrar and your exams are to test if you are safe. And like you said, it's sometimes not knowing all the bits of information, but knowing where to look. So knowing where the stroke guidelines are, knowing that, oh, I think there's a guideline on, you know, hypertension in stroke. And knowing what that guideline would look like and knowing that what it should say. Yeah. So it, it will make sense to you. Like, I know that you'd probably give libido. Do I know the dose and the, and how quickly you give it over the top of my head? Probably not, but I'd know I'd look at it. Hmm. And and I think that's that's the safest thing. You can't hold everything in your head, and I think that's a lot of pressure. Um, also, you're as only good as your team. So if you have a good lot of juniors with you who do do the basics and do everything, there's very little sometimes as a med reg that you come and have to do. It's just kind of like, hmm. yeah, continue. We'll keep an eye on it. Tweak a few things. Um, so empower empower your juniors as much as you can. So the more you can teach them when you're on call with them, the better they'll be and the better actually easier your job will be. Mm. Yeah, I entirely agree. And awareness of what each person's skill set is within the team. And you bring wisdom, I think, as a medical registrar. You don't have to bring knowledge of every single disorder, but you have to be able to spot normal to not normal and understand where you fit in the process. And the use of people around you, I think, is something you develop as a medical registrar when you start to understand you can't do all of this on your own and understand that other people have a role to play, but also know when to demand them to play that role. So if you've got a sick patient, you've got to be able to advocate for the next person to come along. Now, in a hospital we work in, that's not so much of a problem, but there are places you work in where you have to tell people they have to come and do their job sometimes. And that comes down to the other art of being a medical registrar, which is good communication skills and being able to have everyone on side. You talk about the team. The whole team needs to be working with you towards that ambition of making sure the hospital is safe. And a big part of that is how you communicate and work as as a team. Me and you are reasonably similar in our approach to this problem, but there are medical registrars, surgical registrars, lots of different types of registrars who don't work as well in the team. Mark, are you insinuating that some surgical registrars are not very good communicators? I'm not saying that at all. (laughs) But what I'm saying is that we have a key strength of medical registrars. We tend to work in the bigger team within the hospital and our team has to work reasonably well. And leadership of the team is a big change between IMT2 and IMT3 because you're now leading the medical take overnight and even during the day by and large. So you've got to be seen as a leadership figure. People have got to want to bring stuff to you because they trust you. And that's a big point. And when you start to lose the trust of your juniors, if you don't communicate clearly, if you're unfair or unkind to them, the only person who really loses out is the patient. And that's one of the most fundamental components to it. But say, if I was to have that pill to come back to the pill thing, it's, 
be open to the fact you don't know everything. Be receptive of it and don't be embarrassed by that. As you say, quite rightly, work within the team, work to your strengths, communicate clearly as well. I think those are the things. And don't you don't have to walk in and everything about the patient right from step one, but do the basics well. Identify the problems. Escalation status are a big part of medical registrar work. Be reasonable. Be fair and make sure the decision fits with the family and with the patient. Don't make decisions that are nonsensical. Be reasonable. I think that's the main my main take home, really. Yeah, and don't forget you're not on your own. So if you are struggling to make those decisions, and they are sometimes very complex, difficult decisions, especially when you get into multi-comorbid patients who have maybe the age of 60 but are actually physiologically 80 plus and i've seen quite a few of those recently you know it can be quite difficult to decide their escalation and that's why sensitive communication speaking to your on-call consultant is probably the right thing to do in those situations and i find the intensive care registrar so I, i don't do it as much now as i used to but bouncing escalations off the ICU registrar, because it actually helps you when you go to the family and say, I've discussed this with the intensive care team. They don't think this would be the right step. I think us as medical trainees are much more aware of what intensive care can and can't offer due to the way training has changed. But at the same time, if you're having those difficult discussions with a family who are expecting escalations, which you deem unfair, actually having those discussions in hand, be it with your on-call medical consultant, or the intensive care registrar helps you ground yourself and not become distracted. Because ultimately, there's been many a time I've spoken to a medical registrar when I've been on call, if I have another medical registrar on call, and just ask their opinion. There's no harm in asking for that second opinion at all. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, sometimes when you're in med reg on nights, it can be a bit lonely as well. So just invite them for a cup of tea. You have a medical registrar who you're not on call with or someone else. (laughs) 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 Or the family, just bring the family in for a cup of tea. So, you know, I hate to wake you up at this time, but I'm really lonely. Do you want to come have a cup of tea? You can fix a lot with a cup of tea, Mark. Don't be be so facetious. You can. Anyway, so I think that's been a useful discussion. Say a bit about how medical registrar life works in our little hospital. Is there anything else you want to mention? No, I think that's pretty much summarised everything quite well. Just do the basics well. That's my only tip. Good. Well, there we are. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll get this sent out in good time. And hopefully it's been useful. And hopefully when Jack's voice is recovered, we'll be able to do another one with another medical registrar. And we'll talk a bit about actually what life is like as a medical registrar, rather than talking through some cases and talk about the, the ins and outs and some of our funny stories that we've collected as a medical registrar. Have you got some funny stories to relay in the future? Oh, I've got plenty. Yeah. I've there plenty. we are. So, something to look forward to. You can look forward to Elliot's random stories of being medical registrar. But there we are. Thank you all for listening and take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Airwave. We hope you enjoyed our podcast and learned something new. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to our podcast on your favorite platform and look out for our content on YouTube. You can say bye as well. No, it's all right. I think you did a good no, job. I'll add it in a minute ago. You know, say, just say bye. Bye. <laughs> the problem is I have to edit out about a little laugh that comes in afterwards. Right, let me turn off the record.